Talk Season 3 of the Telly Award-winning podcast. Coming at you like Tyrone, Sonny Caesar Taylor. A nitty, nasty, gritty, smashing, never slow gassing. Strictly swift blast of the raspy rasp fashion. Just when you thought it was safe, Avalonian and Grant hit you in the face. Back the fricky frack up. It's the writer's block. <laughs> I am Riley wow. Grant. That was good, huh? Screenwriter. Ringo, award-winning creator of fine comics like Everett, Banjack, Suicide Jockeys, and now Fashang Origins. The other voice in the dark, the man in the box to the left is... Uh, David Avalone, screenwriter, television writer currently, and uh, comic book writer and coffee achiever. I am uh, coming in hot today, if it wasn't obvious already, um, for a number of reasons. Back from a very long trip to Greece prepping a, a, a movie with the uh, the brilliance and uh, an amazing Fernando Chureba, uh, uh that will star Matt Dillon and Ida Fulch. It was amazing. Uh, it was on a Greek island for about 10 days, um, you know, getting a movie together. And then when I came back, this pretty thing was waiting for me. This is our telly um, for series excellence. Shiny and... And aerodynamic, so pretty. Um, it's prettier than an Emmy, really. It is, yeah, it is prettier than an Emmy. I, I you know, yeah, yeah I, I think it's better than an Emmy. You know, the, the, that's just me. But <laughs> I, know people, I know some people with Emmy. Hold up the the thing again. See where it the where the feet meet the thing. Yeah, I would say that fifty percent of the people I know who have Emmys, the thing broke off at the feet. Oh, really? Interesting. So, so that broke, so the, broke at the ankles. Yeah, they have so, the base, and then they have the thing lying next to it on their. So I'm just saying. So there's this a, is more structurally set. We have one yeah. of the structurally sound awards than in, than the average Emmy. Yeah, I didn't realize there was such a a, a blatant design flaw on the Emmy. Um, Ask I, your local I, Emmy winner yeah. for more information. I have talked with people about Oscars and uh, the uh, the plating flakes off of them. Um, yeah, yeah, the plating flakes off of some of them. I've heard it, and um, I've heard people say, like, you know, because if you, when the Academy finds out, they're like, "Hey, let us send you a new award," and and of course, people are like, "Well, no, this is mine. <laughs> like, I, I don't want a different one. This is the one I want. I got to go up right. on stage." And, uh, right. but yeah, so this is a, uh, you know, fun stuff. Well, what do you got? Uh, what do you got to plug this week? Uh, you know what? I didn't think much about it. Um, if you go to uh, the Immortal Studios website, you can still get uh, Fashing Origins. I believe it's immortal slash studios dot com. Uh, Fashing Origins is my um, my wuxia kung fu uh, epic. Um, I am supposed to right now be figuring out what the hell's next with comics, and I'm having a lot of good uh, conversations with uh, publishers. And of course, I got. I got stuff in the chamber, but um, but you know nothing, uh, nothing yeah. to really shout from the rooftops uh, uh, just yet. But uh, what do you have? I have uh, currently in stores uh, behind me. You can see some covers. It uh, with zero humility, I will say it's probably the funniest thing I've ever written. It is an issue long parody of The Shining, starring Elvira, with my favorite title ever. She's a Kubrick house. Um, uh, it is a sort of nonstop. Uh, You'd be surprised how many Jack Nicholson jokes you can get into 20 pages of comic book. I'm just saying. There's a lot of, or I sh as I should, in uh, I'm using what I will call the Mad Magazine template. So we're talking about Nick Jackelson oh, wow. um, in the part of uh, Nick Torrance. Nice. Um, there's even a gag in there where uh, Scatman Crothers calls, shows up and she calls him hollering 
And he says, isn't that what they called me in the Mad Magazine parody 30 years ago? And she's like, who can remember? Nice. Because uh, I honestly don't remember if I got that joke from myself or from Al Jaffe. <laughs> that is currently on stands. It's selling very well, so it may be tricky to get a hold of. Um, and uh, next month will be issue three, which is our alien issue, which is called Geiger Encounter. Um, and uh, equally goofy number of jokes at the expense of the alien franchise. So that's what I got. But let's bring in our guest. Love it. The lovely and talented David Campo. Hey, Hello, David. <laughs> that was quite the uh, the intro at the beginning of the show. There, <laughs> it, was, it was a lot, right? See, this is what happens. We take a couple of weeks off, and I just, you know, I need to, I need to expel this energy, and I don't. It was get a there. lot of energy. Yeah, I'm yeah, like, I, I got to really step it up here because, yeah. uh, you know, I'm kind of like eh, it's hot out, and you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah. it, was, it was about three weeks of uh, of intro energy that just got unloaded there. So sorry. Yeah, about yeah, your energy is usually pretty high on the intro, which is good. It's it provides me the counterbalance to be the back. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, quieter. There are very few social situations in which I am the quieter person. Uh, <laughs> so it's it's good to be allowed that, like, oh, I can actually, I can yeah. actually bring it in a little bit. That's nice. A little yin and yang, yeah. Why don't you tell the kids at home just a little bit about yourself before we dive in? Well, um, I am a writer. Uh, I've written for comics, uh, film, uh, video games, uh, prose. Um, mostly what people would know me from would be a couple things. One is a, back in 2007, I launched a, uh, audio, uh, like an iTunes podcast. It's an audio drama. It's called Wormwood, a serialized mystery. It's still out there. Uh, but we were the early days of, uh, of an audio drama podcast. I feel like I kind of think of us as the garage band years of audio drama, uh, in, in the podcasting form, because, you know, we were kind of figuring out as we went, it's a little, little rough in the audio quality at places I've seen much more polished stuff since but I still love that story because it was it was my chance to form my own writer's room with a group of talented writers to work directly with actors and not have to worry about all the filming stuff that you guys are both very well aware of how long everything takes and there was something just enchanting about sitting in a a uh uh, on a set and waiting for half an hour for the hallway to be lit just right so that a woman could run down it, cut, strike, set up somewhere else, right? Um, right. And in the meantime, while I was waiting for all that, I was listening to some um, podcasts, you know, they, with my, I think it was an iPod Nano at the time, um, <laughs> to, to take me a little bit. And uh, and I'm like, you know what? I love the old audio dramas. It We have this global distribution platform right here um, why don't, and we love working with actors. Um, why don't we just start writing audio drama scripts? And it was a way for me to kind of get out my love for Twin Peaks and Hellblazer and, and even soap operas, um, and bring that all into an audio form. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, so that kind of got me launched in, in audio drama. Then I turned around and did my first, and I've been a lifelong comics uh, fan and reader, but, um, I, and I never been able to break into comics really, but, um, we had a, a listener, who is an artist named Jared Souza contact us and say, I really, I'm listening to Wormwood while I'm drawing. I really want to draw this as I really want to adapt it. And mm -hmm. so Jeremy, my co-creator and I, we, we were like, well, we want to do an original story. So let's do a prequel. And that became Sparrow and Crow, the demoniac of Los Angeles. And that was uh, published in 2012 by uh, Hermes press. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, so that kind of got me on the road. And then Chris Anderson and I did Lost Angels, which found a, a publisher through Comicer Press. And uh, from there, I went into like the DC talent development 
uh, workshop with Scott Snyder, uh, put out another book through Fanbase Press called The Margins. And um, now I am currently running a Kickstarter for a book called Spectral, A Showcase of Fear. I'm reteaming with Chris and we have been kind of creating these short, spooky, sort of EC inspired um, anthology stories for about, I want to say we've been doing them slowly over about five years where we sort mm -hmm. of create the book and like as a mini comic publish it ourselves, bring it to shows. And now we are collecting it all in a new framing sequence um, that David, you will totally appreciate because it's got a little bit of that Elvira crypt keeper mm -hmm. kind of vibe to it. I wanted to kind of recontextualize the stories and add something to them. So we have this puppeteer character um, called Professor Spectral who is uh, hosting the stories. Um, and, and so to me, that was important because I, if you bought the individual stories at, from us at conventions, I really wanted to use the Kickstarter to create a book that is has all those stories, but has more and, sure. and brings more to you. So, so that's kind of where we are right now. We're running the Kickstarter. We, there's about a week left, and we still have uh, uh, a little bit to raise. So, uh, I'm not going to lie. We need people to go and check it out. And well, uh, you'll, you'll get that. You'll get that writer's block bump, and it'll take you right over. Yeah, the that's what I'm expecting. How many? How many pages? How many stories? So it is six stories plus the framing sequence. Every story is about 12. I think one of them might be 13 pages. Um, and then there's a framing sequence that is a, um, a few, like maybe three or four pages up front, five pages at the end, and then like one page in between each story that transitions. Uh, I, I think that I've got the count locked right now for the book at 112 pages. So it's a full-size like graphic that. novel. Yeah, it's a lot of, it's a lot of content, yeah. That's yeah, it is. It's funny, the first, I don't know, eight years, seven, six years of my comic career, I only wrote full issues, never wrote a short, never participated yeah. in an anthology. And then I did one anthology, the Nightmare Theater Anthology, which I had an eight-pager in. And since then, I've done a like a dozen short pieces, and it's a really great... 20 pages, 22 pages is a really tricky narrative yeah. length because you feel constrained to tell a... a fairly full story even in a even in a monthly comic you need to mm -hmm. getting middle and end a short gives you a little more of an interesting like here's a here's a bite here's yeah. a here's a here's a scene that yeah. lands really well and it's a very different form of writing and i really i really dig it i have a i think it's currently i didn't mention this in the plugs plugs part I'm part of an anthology that's raising funds right now for something called uh, Shakespeare Unbound. And it is largely a prose anthology of horror fiction set in the world of Shakespeare. But the editor who previously had me do a short Kolchak piece or two uh, came to me for a comics piece. And I think it's actually even going to be a manga size thing, which should be interesting. Oh, wow. It's an eight pager called Bloody Thou Art. <laughs> that that maybe Richard the Third was a vampire. Because that seemed it. like uh, that seemed like I couldn't believe no one else had done. He came to me. The thing was already very much locked, and he came to me and said, "Okay, here's the twenty things that people are doing," and like maybe six of them were already Hamlet. I'm like, "Okay, Hamlet's out." Mm -hmm. uh, but no one had picked on Richard the Third, who to me is the most obvious. I mean, you've got the witches and Macbeth and whatever, mm -hmm. but Richard is sort of the most obvious monster to me, maybe outside of yeah. Titus Andronicus. And Titus is almost the good guy in that piece compared to all <laughs> the other horrible people in it. So, uh, so that seemed like a, a natural thing. But yeah, the it's an interesting thing. You talk about the EC influence. Yeah, comics were such a different thing before Frederick Wortham. Oh yeah. <laughs> and uh, 
Howard Chaikin always argues that Wortham, the damage is still not undone. That mm -hmm. infantilization of comic books and the channeling of the entire genre into brightly colored superhero stories, we still haven't recovered from it yeah. with adult comics for adults. Now, of course, there have been a million you know, comics out there, but, you know, 40 years after, 40 years after Love and Rockets, just to pull an example off the top of my head, there are still people who hear comic book and think superhero. And, you know, I've been yeah. working in comic books for eight years. I, unless Vampirella is a superhero, which I think is a pretty <laughs> big stretch, I have still yet to write an actual superhero. Yeah. I mean, you could argue that the shadow is a superhero, but he's a proto. The shadow and Doc Savage are proto superheroes. So mm -hmm. talk a little bit about the influence of EC and, you know, what, what was your, where do you learn about those comics and read those comics? Yeah. I mean, I probably came to EC later, like more of a, a you know, I grew up with comics and it was largely superheroes, right? Sure. Um, for me, where it starts to really, and, and you mentioned Love and Rockets, um, and and, and uh, we're close in age, I think you'll appreciate the, uh, uh, that like for me, what I was kind of coming out of high school, comics, superhero comics seemed a little dead to me. Like I just didn't, they weren't doing anything for any for me anymore. And there were a couple books that really kept me intrigued. Um, one was Denny O'Neill and Dennis Cowan had done The Question in the late, late 80s. And that was sure. a book that I'm like, okay, I'm still a teenager, but I can I can get behind this. It's like a faceless guy searching for identity. It feels like an adolescent kind of, you know, identity search book. Um, sure. The other one was that uh, I think it was 1990, um, uh, uh, Rolling Stone did their hot issue. And for the first time I had ever seen uh, the hot thing was comic books and they talked about love and rockets. They talked about Neil Gaiman and Sandman. They talked about Grant Morrison and animal man. They talked about Hellblazer, mm -hmm. uh, uh, all this stuff. And I was like, Whoa, this is comics. And, and I found myself just completely diving into uh, Sandman and Hellblazer, Doom Patrol, Shade the Changing Man. Uh, I have to give a shout that. out here and say that there's a brand name for every single thing you mentioned, and that is, of course, Vertigo. Yes, yes. Like all it, of those this titles was... actually have one thing in common, and it's Vertigo. <laughs> yeah. Our, our most recent guest, Shelley Bond, uh, you yeah. know, being one of the handmaidens of that uh, revolution. Well, it, it, yeah. It, I, I, I mean, I, I've said a million times. Also, it was Vertigo that that hooked me. I mean, I, yeah. I was one of the I was one of the boobs that it was the death of Superman that pulled me into a comic shop. Yeah. I was very young. Um, you know, and then that petered out because th yeah. there was there was very little substance there. Um, but thankfully, there was a really great comic shop owner that's like, oh, you, you know, you're interested in this stuff. Actually, you should be reading this. And yeah. here, here is Hellblazer. You know, here is uh, um, you know, let's go into the back, uh, the back issue bins. You know, uh, Iron, uh, Marvel made Iron Man an alcoholic back in the '70s. You should check that out. You should, you know, um, but but it really was Vertigo that. that yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was there for the birth of Vertigo. It was fascinating because, like, when Sandman and Hellblazer launched, they were not Vertigo. They became Vertigo a couple yeah. of years into the run. And and uh, and and yeah, so I kind of got it, and then I'm like, oh, now there's a name for it, as David just said, it's Vertigo, and and you know, it was all about Vertigo, and I came to appreciate superheroes again through that in in a weird way. Uh, Grant Morrison writing Animal Man, and there's a scene in like Animal Man number three where Buddy Baker, who's uncomfortable wearing his skin tight costume, so he wears a denim jacket over it, he has stopped his patrol to uh, to eat a sandwich that his wife made for him. You know, pulls it out of a paper bag. He's sitting on a rooftop. 
he's playing he's playing his uh, uh, Discman or something like that or Walkman. I'm not sure what it was at the time. And uh, REM's "I Am Superman" comes on, and Superman flies by, and the the wonder at like meeting Superman and shaking his hand. I'm like. Oh, I get it. Like I was kind of thinking the DC superheroes, they, they felt weird to me kind of growing up because they're kind of still wearing these very classic costumes that feel a little old to me now. And yet I'm like, oh, I, I kind of get it. Like Superman is Michael Jordan in, in the DC universe. Like Superman is the trendsetter, is the fashionista. It, like like he, they're going to like fashion in the DC universe should be different than our universe because the 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 paragons <laughs> of that world, you know, wear underwear on the outside of their pants and everybody is right. okay with it. So I, I got into it that I'm like, okay, so this is a different world. I kind of get it. I, I really appreciate the sort of hierarchy I'm seeing here. And I kind of found myself back into that. But I think the Vertigo stuff was really what stuck with me and informs my writing more than anything. And in fact, what I would say is while I would learn about EC comics and really read up on them later, I would actually say that this book owes so much to the, I think, third story arc in Sandman, the dream country. Do you guys remember those single issue stories and the way that they were so beautifully done? They're not even, not many of them aren't even that scary. They're they're sort of melancholy, atmospheric, there's a little bit of horror in it. That's very much what like the stories in in Spectral are. are. So I think they, uh, the more I think about it, they really do come from that and and how that affected me at like 17 or 18 when I read them and sure. like, wow. <laughs> and, and Vertigo is in its way an echo of EC. For sure, uh, yeah. If you go back and read, you know, the, 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 the seedling, and I use the term very precisely, of Vertigo is all in Alan Moore's Swamp Thing. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I don't know that it's often acknowledged that the cosmology of Neil Gaiman's Sandman, you know, the eternal, the, yeah. the endless and the seven of them are Neil Gaiman, but the cosmology they're attached to is all Alan Moore. And yeah. when I see the ads for the new upcoming sad, Sandman, there's, I have a certain sadness that like, when I see Matt Cable, the crow, I'm like, I'm sad that his beautiful, tragic backstory <laughs> has nothing to do with this character anymore. Right. They haven't right. done that version of, no one's done that version of Swamp Thing in any media outside of comic books. And I'm sad that right. Matt Cable isn't the FBI agent who was married to the daughter of a supervillain who was <laughs> in love with Swamp Thing. Like, you know, all yeah. of that is so beautiful and so dense. And now he's just a, a crow with a bad attitude instead of all of that. Yeah. Being- Incredible tragic backstory, but I do think I've been I've been hitting on this note a lot, and I want it to. It's one of those things I want people to really absorb. I think about it watching the Star Trek prequel, Strange New Worlds. Yeah, it's it reminds me of nothing so much as theater in the fifth century in Athens, in that we all know what happens to Oedipus. Yeah, we all know what happens to Captain Pike. It's not what happens. That's not the the drama. Yeah. Like you go to see Agamemnon in the fifth century Greece. You know Clytemnestra is going to kill him. That's not. There's no narrative surprise. No one's standing in the lobby in Athens in the fifth century going, "She kills him at the end." Spoiler. Uh, <laughs> like we all know that it's history. Yeah. Now it's about why and how and what are the feelings and what is it like mm-hmm. to be a part of that story and. Obi-Wan Kenobi, same thing. It's Athens in the fifth century. It's here's this story, here's this chunk of a story from the Trojan War. 
uh, from actually the immediate aftermath of the Trojan War, which we can, you know, map onto the Clone Wars. Uh, let's tell a little story about what happened to Odysseus. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I met that little girl that's going to call him for help 20 years yeah. later, 10 years later. Yeah. You know? It's um, it's even worse than that. I mean, it, and I don't mean worse. It's even, I mean, it goes further than that because not only do we know what happens at the end, like you know, we as a society, and it was probably like that in in Greece. If you want to see enough plays, they all progress the same way. There is a structure to these things, right? Um, we as a society have we have consumed so many movies, so much television. Mm -hmm that we now think in, in three act structure. Right. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and you know, it used to be, I mean, I write for a living. I've, I've, I've written professionally for a living for 16 years. And so um, I, I can see the edits. I used to piss my wife off because, you know, five minutes into a top chef episode, I could tell you who was winning <laughs> and who was going home. I've <laughs> done that too. Yes. Yeah. 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 I, really I, annoying I, to our partners. I, yeah, I know I get it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and so I was, you know, and, and, and I think like I was a little more unique back then. I don't think I'm unique anymore. I think we all see it so much so that the editors have to now start to outthink us like, you know, Oh, it's actually this person. Ooh, let's, let's give you those. So, so, so here's the thing is like, we all know, you know, we all know, uh, we all know what happens at the end. We all know what, what the journey is going to be like. You know, we know mm -hmm. that it's going to seem like all hope is lost, uh, uh, you know, 70 minutes into a 90 minute movie. Um, we know that the good guys are going to win in the end. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but we still love it. It's still all about yeah. the journey. I mean, you can stand below a roller coaster and you can see the whole trip. You're like, oh, wow, that's a high. Oh, and then we go through. The roof <laughs> roof. Oh, yeah. no. And then and then and then it fakes left and then it fakes right. Uh, uh, we know it's coming. There are no surprises, right? But yeah. but um, but the ride is still fucking amazing if it's done right. And and, and I think that that's like you know yeah. The, the, I mean, the, I think yeah. Go ahead. The, well, I was just going to say in a more uh, bluntly pop cultural uh, uh, sense, like we, we know that when we go to see a movie like Die Hard, even though we we never seen it before or whatever, we don't think that John McClane is going to die at the end of it. We think it's a, it's an action movie. He's going to yeah. succeed. Uh, right. I mean, you can pull that on us, but I think a lot of times the studios don't even want that because they then the a people get angry and blah blah yeah. blah. Right? What, so, what, 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 what Walking Dead did that for five, yeah. six seasons and, and <laughs> alienated half their fucking audience. It was awful. Right, right. Yeah. But like, yeah, especially you know, and even in the eighties, taking an action yeah. movie, you know, but what you don't know is exactly how he's going to get out of each situation. It also puts me in mind. Um, there's also the how and the why. It puts, I think. Um, who was it that wrote that? Um, there was a short story um, or kind of an essay, like a metafictional essay, and I'm blinking on who wrote it now. Uh, I want to say Joyce Carol Oates, but that might be wrong. Um, but it basically posits that like it was, it's a it's a it's a meta metafictional essay called Happy Endings. And I'm sure you can go and look it up, although if you look up Happy Endings on the Internet, that's probably gonna get you a lot of different. Yeah, <laughs> um, but uh, <laughs> but but uh, um, uh, this is a this posits. Yeah. <laughs> this posits that, you know, there's only one real ending and that's everybody dies. Right. Yeah. But um, and so she kind of ends the essay saying like a plot after all is kind of the most simple thing. It's just a what, a what and a what. And she her final words, I think, are now try the how and the why. Yeah, and that's yeah. what we that's what we aim for. How and why and, and, and what and no matter if we're familiar with the structure and we know that it's going to seem like all hope is lost, but the good guy's going to pull it out in the end. We can still strap ourselves into that roller coaster 
and you yep. know the difference is in the details and, yeah, and yeah. we are there to feel something and we want to feel that terror and yeah. then that relief you know what is it aristotle in the poetics it's about catharsis it's not about who catharsis the, yeah about yeah, it, long yeah 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 and you want a very human reason to you know to, to put some chips on the table, you know? I mean, I remember when, when I was at the University of Michigan, we had Jeb Stewart, you know, co-writer of Die Hard uh, uh, in teaching us for about a week. And, you know, he was telling us about when he when he figured out Die Hard, you know? I mean, it, this is this is way far into the process, right? I mean, they're, they're, they're about to make this movie and, and mm -hmm. it still doesn't have the meaning for him, right? It's like, okay, well, you got this guy and you got this building and you have these terrorists and you... Um, and, uh, and, and, and he still doesn't know what it's about, you know, like from a human standpoint. And that was what he needed to figure out. And that is the difference, particularly with an action movie between, you know, whatever, a, a piece of shit and something that, that's really sublime, right? Something like Die Hard. Yeah. Um, and there are other things that Die Hard. I mean, Bruce Willis is so good. And John McClane is such a, I mean, you know, John McClane is not the invincible action hero we're used to. He is beat to, to fucking shit by the end of the year. <laughs> right bruised up uh you know and he's 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 not he's not fucking arnold schwarzenegger he's not invincible right. he's uh he's you know he's he's a slightly elevated version of you or me and he somehow makes it through but what jeb stewart was saying is so so he was he's trying to figure this out and it's driving him crazy and so he's mm -hmm. not he's not being great with his family and uh and um and so he has this big argument with his wife he's he, he's he has to go back to the office and write. He's got to figure this out. He's got to figure this mm -hmm. out. You know, hey, we got stuff with the kids and blah, 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 blah. They have this huge knockdown drag out. He gets in the car. He's driving down the freeway. Um, and there is, and, and he's sort of lost in thought. And he's, oh, why would my wife do that? Blah, 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 blah. And then, um, and then there was this huge truck in front of him. And, uh, and he looks up at some point. And it's this big truck hauling all this stuff. And a giant refrigerator box comes flying off the truck lands right in front of his car and he's going 75 miles an hour down, you know, whatever the 110 or whatever, literally has no time to stop. He's going to hit this thing at, at 75 miles an hour and his life flashes before his eyes. I'm about to hit a refrigerator. <laughs> I'm gonna die. <laughs> uh, the last thing I said to my wife was whatever he said, go fuck yourself. Like, you know, right. uh, this isn't worth my time, blah, 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 blah it all makes fucking sense to him. And then he hits this box and it's empty. He tears through it. It's a cardboard box. Hmm. Nothing happens. He's fine. But he, but for a second, he was certain he was going to die. And all that popped into his head was I, you know, my wife, I shouldn't have said that. I didn't get a chance to say I was sorry. Mm -hmm. And then it occurs to him. This is what Die Hard is about. Right. <laughs> right? It, it, it is a, it, it is a couple who are estranged. There's yep. a situation happening. He sure. has come. He has come to apologize. He has come to make to 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 make it right. Uh, he gets there. He is about to do it, and then terrorists come in and take over the building. <laughs> <laughs> and he needs he needs to get rid of these terrorists. He needs yep. to save the day so he can apologize to his wife. And 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 that is the human character engine of Die Hard. And it is it is subtle. Exactly. It is small, but it is fucking brilliant. And you are rooting for him every step of the way because there is this, I mean, you know, again, there's a charismatic actor who owns the part and it's well-written and, and all yeah. of these things, but you are in it because it is, because we all get it. Like we've yeah. all, we've all been there. We all, you know, there's probably something I need to apologize for right now. And I'm going to, I'm going to log off after this and go do it. You know, <laughs> the tricky, the, the tricky thing is, I think that 
writers absorb that lesson and then they don't understand that you have to attack the subtext and the text have to be in conversation with one another. Mm, yeah. Spielberg yeah. spent $250 million on a war of the world's movie. That's about being a bad dad. That is not <laughs> what that story is about. Right. That is not the, that is not the subtext of war. The subtext of war of the world's is colonialism. Actually find a way to make it about colonialism. Yep. Maybe, maybe Tom Cruise is angry because a black guy has taken over his job. That's what War of the Worlds is about. <laughs> if he's to learn a lesson, it's about, oh, I hate that these people moved in next door. Or he's in favor of the war in Afghanistan and doesn't get that now he's an Afghan villager and mm -hmm. the Martians are the American army. Like, that's what the subtext is in, in H.G. Wells. And I think Spielberg, because he has issues with his dad, will map issues with dad onto literally every story he tells <laughs> whether it's yeah, I believe that. or not. I'm glad he didn't find a way to drag Schindler's dad into Schindler's list. But <laughs> he managed to resist that uh, temptation. And, you know, and look, and Spielberg's as good as they get. So my point is anyone can make that mistake. I'm not, yeah. you know, I'm not bagging on one of the world's finest filmmakers for none of us is infallible. And sometimes you have a thing yeah at the top of your head and you end up making the wrong movie yeah. about that thing. And that movie is gorgeous and has a lot of stunning scenes in it. But ultimately all through it, I'm like, I, why do I, okay. So he doesn't have a great relationship with his teenage son. Do either of them notice the world is fucking ending and maybe they <laughs> over it now. Like I, it's, it, it's not a good fit and it's not always a good fit. And seriously watch, there are a ton of end of the world shows on television right now. And half of them, even the walking dead was guy doesn't have a great relationship with his kid. It's like, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Can we maybe get past that? Uh, and I look, parental issues are one of the biggest stories you can tell. It's a thing that everyone understands. Even people who have great parents have that experience. Yeah. Um, you know, and for me, I can, I honestly, when the empire strikes back came out, my father was going through the worst period of his life. He was physically ill, which led to a degree of massive depression and mental illness. And for me, the Star Wars movies are about, the first three are about accepting that your father is a human being and fallible. That is why they resonate with, would I care about them if my father hadn't got sick in 1979? Sure, I loved, 19, in 1977, he wasn't sick yet and I love that mm -hmm. movie. Mm -hmm. but Empire and Jedi, people who hate Jedi, I'm like, I will never not love the scenes between Luke and Darth Vader in that fucking movie. Yeah. Uh, James Earl Jones saying it is too late for me, son, will make me cry every time I fucking hear it, you mm -hmm. know, because, mm -hmm. and it's in the pulpiest, most light, the lightest concoction in the world. But Lucas is at least a good enough writer or Lawrence Kasdan is a good enough writer to go, no, there's a subtext to all myths. And mm -hmm. you can't do this giant, I mean, you know, they were clearly influenced by, you know, ancient mythology when they put that stuff together. And mm -hmm. uh, and Jack Kirby. But, you know, that's another that's another story. But but yeah, that, for it to have that resonance he realized between 1977 and 1980, it's gotta be <clears throat> more than big shit blows up and looks cool. Like, yeah, gotta, yeah. There's gotta be an extra, an extra thing to it. 
Yeah. Uh, and the best versions of Star Wars lean into it, and the best, the worst versions sort of lean away from I, it. I, I was going to say, if only somebody had reminded him of uh, of those principles in the the late nineties. Uh, oh yeah, <laughs> I will. Say, I mean, the funny thing is, you know, and not to break my arm patting my own back, I remember in the early eighties, late seventies, Lucas talking about his plan for Star Wars, and after Return of the Jedi, he was going to make three movies. It took him mm -hmm. twenty years about the rise of Darth Vader, and I went. That can't be big, satisfying popcorn movies, George. Like you, those, those mm -hmm. won't be Star Wars movies. Then that's <laughs> how you end those on a happy note, and they don't. <laughs> you know, like, like these are big, crowd-pleasing adventure movies, and you're you want to make cabaret essentially, yeah. you know, with Darth right. Vader. I, I want to see cabaret with Darth Vader. I, I, <laughs> That's, or the omen, you know, about the, the the murder child who grows up to be president. Like right. literally, <laughs> the first three omen movies is Phantom Menace through uh, Final Conflict. Except in the end, he does get to be president. You know, like yeah, great, very satisfying. Uh, <laughs> so, so that always struck me as like that's gonna not be good. Why? Would yeah, that? yeah. It's also this thing where it's like you know the the, the more you explain. You know, the worse it gets. Yeah. I mean that that, that that that's where that's where those first you know the that's where episodes one through three or whatever really suffered. You know, um, mm -hmm. it was just you. We, we had these stories in our heads. They were our own stories about you know, yeah. it, and they were taken from clues and everything. And and we had put this own puzzle together in our head. Okay, this is how Darth Vader got here, and this is how this group got here, and that group got here. And then you go back. And you not only explain it, but you 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 over-explain right. it. You give yeah. us way way too much, and, it, and, and, mm -hmm. and it's not good. And it's yeah. it's never going to be as good as what was in our head. And 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 that is, you know, um, I mean, this is a you know, on this movie, I was prepping in Greece. It was a um, it, it was you know, we're we wrote this script fucking 15, 16 years ago, right? And 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 now it's it's finally about to get made, and. You know, you 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 come to. I mean, we we are finally in the locations, and we're we're molding the scripts of the locations and the place and the the actors that we have and all of that stuff. But then there there are those two or three story issues that you're still working out. You're still trying to iron out. And and this was the major, um, you know, this was the major argument we were having right up until the end. And I don't I don't I still don't know if it's if it's settled, but um, you know, it was in, in the there was this. Thing that's happening in the present of the movie and and it all bends around something that happened 30 years ago right and 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 the question the big question we're wrestling with is well what happened 30 years ago and my and and everybody's trying to explain it and the producer has you know her idea and the director has his idea and the actor has his idea and um and they are very invested in those ideas like like ready to fight over them i mean people are, are screaming at each other over this shit right and 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 and, and it proved my point. I'm like, look at this. Like you love, you love your version of, of, of what happened 30 years ago. You love yours. Like you guys, you're literally, you're about to arm wrestle over this shit. You know, <laughs> um, if I step in and say, no, it's this, you know, you're going to be like, eh, not so much. I like mine better. You know what I'm saying? Right. Literally everybody watching this movie is going to, is going to have their, based on all the clues we've given them, they have a very clear picture of what happened 30 years ago. All we can do is disappoint them. So let's not tell them. You yeah. Know? 
And, I, and, I, and yeah, and what's going to happen too is they're going to walk out of the movie theater and they're going to go and sit down with their friends and have a cup of coffee and say, "Oh my God, what happened 30 years ago?" This is what I think. What do you think? What do you think? No, that could. Mm -hmm. No, you know what I'm saying. So, yeah. it's a tough needle to thread, and um, and I, you know, I appreciate that because that's one of the things I felt about those prequels too. Is like, you know, the backstory that we imagine just from that title crawl and this, the way people spoke. That's an art form that I think is lost a little bit. Not not just calling out Star Wars, but the idea of writing. Um, where there's a lot of backstory, there's a lot of the iceberg under the water that you don't need to show. You 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 have to show how the characters feel yeah. in that regard. That mm -hmm. there is something under the surface. They they have experienced something, and you need to you know kind of get the audience invested in that. But um, you know, in your case, it sounds like a great example of don't say it, let people debate it. But that's but that can also lead that can tilt the other way, where then the audience walks away unsatisfied because they can't because the connective tissue just it was just enough of a disconnect that they're like, well, I don't, if I can't figure it out, I don't care. I'm not saying that's the case with your movie. <laughs> I'm just saying that that's, that's it's threat, a bouncing right? act. Yeah. Yeah. It's a bouncing. Yeah. My, 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 my point was star Wars back to the original yeah. point. Is yes. That it was perfect. Yeah. <laughs> it was perfect. I, I agree. And then they and went I, and fucked I, it up. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> right. right. And, they, and, they have spent, and they have spent, you know, the decades since trying to fucking unfuck yeah. what they fucked up. Right? And, and I, I have had, way, I think there's a way to do one prequel. Yeah. that would have been appropriate yeah. from which they could have then moved on yeah. and not told you too much and not over explained and hit on the moments. I mean, I was thinking about this the other day while thinking about the connection with Greek mythology. Troy is a terrible movie, but watching the fight between Eric Bana and Brad Pitt as Hector and Achilles, a small part of me went, this is a story humanity has been telling for 5,000 years and mm -hmm. here it is, or 3,000 years. I can't remember how old that story is, but it's, it's thrilling to see a movie in the 21st century. And here's this fucking 3,000 year old action scene that's existed in human culture. And as much as they're not good movies in revenge of the Sith, I remember reading an article with, an interview with George Lucas in 1980 where he said, oh, Darth Vader got burned during a lightsaber duel with Obi-Wan Kenobi on, Kenobi on the edge of a volcano. And just watching the scene in Revenge of the Sith, I went, wow, this is this is that thing from third, you know, 40 years yep. ago, this was foretold, <laughs> and here I am watching it. And that's kind of neat. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, the, the Bond series did the same thing. They made one really great origin movie. They made a lot of money yeah. in critical acclaim. And then they wouldn't get off it and made four more origin movies. <laughs> and it's like, yeah. no, move on. Yeah. Move on yeah, from that. Yeah, it can be done well. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I, think you do, I, I think you have to do, you know, again, um, I mean, Karate Kid is my favorite, you know, piece of, of media ever. And, you know, they, um, in Cobra Kai, they went back. They, they took us back to John Kreese in Vietnam. And how he yeah, was very yeah. sober and all that stuff. And that, that was very satisfying, and it made sense, and it was, and um, and, and that was good. And they gave us just enough, you know what I'm saying? They yeah. didn't try to explain everything, and they didn't give us nine hours of fucking content and midichlorians and and whatever <laughs> else. Um, uh, but 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 it can be do, you know. And and then while we're sitting here thinking about Star Wars, I mean, I thought you know, Rogue One was Rogue One was a solid movie, you know, and 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 and, and, and that's a prequel, and and I mean, that's a lesson where it's like, okay, well, we're not going in, and we're not dealing with like. You know, we're not dealing with like the main line, right? We're 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 going back, and here's something that was important, but it, it it's not it's not how Darth Vader was made. <laughs>
you know, right. uh, uh, here's an important part of the past. Uh, it, you know, here's a, here's something else that was going on. And yeah. And that was cool, you know. And, and, and when, 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 you, when, you, when you do that, you can have nods to like the main, the main. And talk story. about effective, yeah. effective foreshadowing. You know, yeah. partially it's a it's a function of doing that kind of story. But I remember halfway through the movie thinking, the only way to explain that these people weren't important in the rebellion, they're all gonna die. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. these people are doomed. Yeah. All of the heroes of this movie are doomed. That is the only. They're not gonna do a. Oh, and then they went off to investigate the space whales for four <laughs> years, like they did on Rebels, which was a funny answer. But I, I loved that that you know sort of wild bunch, yeah, you yeah. know, dirty dozen feeling of like, no, this story ends with every single one of these fucking people dying right. a horrible death, lonely on a planet in the middle of a battle. And, and again, it's not about what happens to them. It's about right. how and why. And it's about yeah, what yeah. we feel about that and what we're given. And so, yeah, I mean, I will say this. I appreciate that Lucas made the prequels on his terms and did it the way he wanted and stuck to his guns. I don't think they're very good. But like we're all saying here, I think it can be done. It doesn't always mean you should. Uh -huh. um, and in this case, to me, I don't think he quite worked it out with those, particularly with the romance angle and and, and sort of the, yeah. you know, I, for me, like the second of the prequels was kind of the worst and just, you know, just didn't come together in terms of the writing and what we're supposed to take away from it. Yeah. Um, I did, I did kind of, I rather enjoyed the Obi-Wan Kenobi. It just wrapped up. And uh, that yeah. one was a better example of taking a story that I didn't think I wanted or needed, but they found a way, they found something in there and sold me on, you know, kind of picking up Obi-Wan as this sort of broken man um, who's got to come to terms with a few things and then kind of spinning it off into a new adventure. And by the end of it, I was like, not everything worked for me, but over overall, you sold me on something I didn't think I wanted, you know, well, and, and some of it's the acting and some yeah. of it's, but some of it's the story choices. And, and, you know, I think, uh, so I think there are cases where you definitely can do that. But I talk about an effective retcon. Um, there's no way that Alec Guinness knew what was coming. Oh no, no. Story-wise. But, and this is a spoiler for Obi-Wan, so turn your, turn your sound <laughs> down for two seconds if you haven't watched it. When Anakin Skywalker says to, when Darth Vader says to Obi-Wan Kenobi, I killed Anakin Skywalker, you will never be able to watch Star Wars again mm -hmm. without interpreting Alec Guinness's uncomfortable pause before he tells that story. Right. The way the people who made that TV series want you to interpret it. Yeah. You're yeah. always going to go... He's processing how to tell this story and he's just going to repeat the story Darth Vader himself, <laughs> you know, because that's what Darth Vader is going to tell the kid. Yeah. You know, well, so it's kind of lovely. You know, it's kind of <laughs> yeah. lovely when you think about it in that sense that like they were they, they, I'm sure that those creators were pouring over the footage of A New Hope yeah. and are able to go like what if we you know and I've, I've seen some friends kind of roll their eyes at how direct a line that is in connection I don't care I think you do that line and it ties yeah. you watch New Hope and like and I said, it ties for whatever in. reason that Alec Guinness decided to take a deep breath look off to the side uncomfortably and it's yeah. fascinating to me as a piece of writing that he starts with you know, how did my father die? The answer is a young Jedi who was a, he could be, he could still be telling the truth, who was a yeah. pupil of mine before he turned to evil. Well, he betrayed and murdered your father. <laughs> sure. that, that's, that's where I was going with that. Like, yeah. it's really yeah. well done. Even <laughs> with, even before the retcon, it's still an uncomfortable moment that indicates that he's not mm -hmm. telling the whole truth. 
that's there in that first movie, whether you like it or not. You yeah, know? I, I mean, you're, you're right about pouring through the footage, and 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 that's how you do these things correctly. You know, again, like the 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 Lucas prequels were, you know, I'm I'm doing my own thing. I, yeah. I'm 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 I'm, 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 I, <laughs> I'm I am creating new territory and explaining new things and fuck what came before and all of that stuff. And that's not how these things are done well. Like the the new prequel the new sequels the new everything there are love letters to to the movies that we love it's like in, in a great way i mean that, that you know that that, that that can become 200 pound weights that you're dragging around with you but it's like but but it's what you're talking about i mean you're you're they they put on the movies they see alec guinness make this pause and that is a dramatic question what's going on there why is he doing mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. let, let, let's pause you want another one and, and this one is amazing and again, will forever change how I view the scene in the movie. Yeah. Obi-Wan Kenobi is dueling Darth Vader on the Death Star. Yeah. He's doing a, a delaying action so they can escape. He looks over and sees the twins together for the first time ever. Oh, yeah. And then he can die. Yeah. Yeah. He looks and sees Luke Skywalker and Leia Organa standing next to each other on the deck of the Death Star and yeah. goes, my job is mission, done. Mission accomplished, yeah. I have reunited the kid. You I never thought about that before. It's someone on Twitter mm -hmm, was like, mm -hmm. the last thing Obi-Wan Kenobi sees before he dies yeah. is that the twins have been reunited. The, the children of Anakin Skywalker and Padme Amidala have been reunited. That's a, that's a beautiful <laughs> thing. I don't care that nobody intended it. It's still a yeah. beautiful thing. Yeah. You know? But anyway, that's a, I have led us down a long uh, winding road away from uh, horror good. and comics and anthology. Well, and I think I can tie it back a little bit in that this started with this idea of the the text and subtext having a conversation with each other. And I think, and I, you guys can speak to this too, I'm sure. But when I approach, um, I think that's what I like about sort of horror or my supernatural stories is that I'm often, maybe sometimes to my detriment, really racking my brain to figure out what am I really trying to say? And, and this, you know, I don't, I didn't always do that. I, you know, at the top of the show, I mentioned Wormwood and that was about a, um, a guy who was a brilliant psychiatrist who kind of understood everything about the human mind, because I always thought that, that that's the person that should meet Linda Blair in The Exorcist, like somebody mm -hmm. who doesn't believe in another world and then suddenly is undeniably can't, uh, can't avoid this other world that has rules that make no sense to him with all of his training and everything, right? So I'm in therapy years later, and, 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 I, and I'm talking about this to my therapist, and um, and she's like, so, and you wrote this character in, what, 2005, 2006, and you were separated from your wife and divorced around what year? So you're writing about a broken man who has entered into a new world where none of the rules make sense and everything is different than what he thought it was going to be. And I'm like, oh, my God. And, every, <laughs> and since that point, I, I think a lot of my horror stuff especially is really... And I think modern horror films, the, the kind of A24 horror films really do that. Like, what is the metaphor really about? If you're going to write about body horror, what is the fear you're going after there? If you're going to write, you know, uh, about this or that, what, what are you really trying to say? And I think so. sometimes that limits me in that I don't chase the, the weird image because I, I, I'm like, I have to wait till it makes sense. And I'm trying to free myself up. I think I, I overcorrected and I'm trying to free myself up. I wrote another story recently that's going to go into an anthology that... Um, I didn't know what it was. It was just an image I was chasing about a ritual uh, where a guy had to remove his own skin to get past some guardian at a citadel. And it, it turns out to be about fathers and sons, but I didn't know that we're writing it. I was just chasing the image. Yeah. But th I think wherever it happens to you in your process up front or at the back end, 
you know, those two things have to be in, in conversation with one another, as you said, David. And, and I think that I really try to approach that in, in these short stories. They are kind of a fear that I have, um, an anger that I have, a dilemma that I have, and then me kind of just figuring out the one sinister element that kind of brings it into focus. Sure. Um, and in 12 page stories, that's all you get. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I hope that I'm successful in that. But I think when I am when I do succeed in those it makes the horror or the supernatural elements more thoughtful. Um, it goes to everything that you and Ryan have both been saying about, you know, how you feel about um, those stories when, when they do connect and, and converse like that. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think that all writing, you can engage with or you can choose not to, but writing is Freudian dream analysis. All yeah. Of oh it. yeah. Oh you yeah. Know, all of it <laughs> is, uh, you know, is that, and you can ignore it. And you know, the thing is you can, if you're good at what you do, you can ignore it and it's still going to be there. It it's right. You're doing you it subconsciously. Consciously. <laughs> yeah. I've written things. And then two years, like you said about the divorce thing, you know, yeah. <laughs> there's a, the third or fourth uh, novel in my dad's detective series, the Ed Noon series is called dead game. And it's a particularly violent book. Great everyone, title. Great everyone title. who does <laughs> any kind of evil in it dies a pretty ghastly death. And I remember after I read it, writing him and going, the noon books aren't usually this gory and violent and sad. And he went, oh, yeah, I was getting divorced that year. <laughs> <laughs> like I was divorcing my first wife before I met your mother. And I was just angry at everybody. So everybody had to die. Like in that book, everybody bad had to die because I, I, I needed to get that out. I needed yeah. to get out that uh, that rage that I had at the world for dealing me this, this shitty hand that I was dealing with. And, uh, you know, and it's, uh, you, I'm always proud that my dad actually got this confession out of him. There's a lot of beheadings in Robert Block, the author of Psycho. Mm -hmm. Marion Crane is actually beheaded by Norman Bates in the shower after mm -hmm. she's killed. And he asked him once, you know, you got a lot of, heads getting chopped off in your books. What's the deal with that? And Block <laughs> told him he was visiting a family farm when he was a kid and just walking around five years old, six years old. And someone had cut the head off a chicken around the corner of the barn and the headless chicken ran into his legs. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> and he's like, I don't think you necessarily have to be Carl Young to unpack. Yeah. <laughs> I became a horror novelist. After having this experience when I was six years old of a fucking, you know, headless thing running into me, spurting blood out of its neck and all yeah. that. And uh, and I, I don't know that I ever read an interview with Locke. This was in a private correspondence. I don't know that I ever read an interview with him where he told that story. But he's like, you know, no one's ever asked me about the beheadings. But now that you bring it up. <laughs> That's you know, so funny. But do, do, uh, do either of you guys have scenes or images that you've been chasing over the years? Like you're, you're always either looking for either you got it into a piece of writing somewhere or it just still haunts you and you're looking for the story. I'm trying to think if I do. And I, I think there's one in one of the one shot horror stories, the spectral stories. Um uh, where it's a man and it's in the first story actually. And which is about a kid that puts on a devil costume that he finds on a dead body. And then the devil costume doesn't want to come off. And then the yeah. end of the, but the end of the story has this other image, which is he's running through the woods to get out of town. Um, and he doesn't understand what's happened to him. And then this bandaged man comes walking out of like an old train tunnel. And I grew up in kind of a countryside area where there, where you could kind of walk up at night and walk up to, and there are these long black train tunnels and they feel like they're the kind of place that would lead you right to hell. 
Mm-hmm. And, I, and I just love that. And I think that that found its way in like years and years later into this. So I'm curious if either of you have, have, have that sort of thing. I haven't put in anything yet. And I've written a bunch of things where it shows up. When I was a teenager, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll say this, that um, Tom King touched on it, not the same image, but uh, when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, around the time that my father was going through his illness and I was going through a depression, I anthropomorphized depression and everything bad in the world literally as Jack Kirby's dark side. <laughs> and I, I, okay. I write dialogues between myself and dark side about how the world works and the nature of good and evil and all that. And they were just, I never did anything with them. But when I was on a walk in my neighborhood late one night, a very suburban, safe neighborhood, I passed some rich person's garage and I'm sure it was a, uh, I'm sure it was a burglar alarm of some kind. But in the depths of their garage, you could see through little window, the, you know, that row of windows in your suburban garage door. There was, I'm sure it was the control panel of a burglar alarm, but there were two red dots, roughly six mm. feet off the ground, roughly three inches apart from each other, looking back from the depths of this person's garage. Mm-hmm. And to me, it was dark side. It, oh, was, wow. it was dark side standing randomly in a suburban garage staring out into the night. <laughs> and uh, I've never done anything with it. Like I said, I've written some some things that use that image. It's never mm. yet made its way into something. But uh, that has stayed with me. I mean, I was 13 or 14. That has stayed with me forever. I bet, uh, yeah. As a startling, just kind of like <laughs> out for a walk late at night because I didn't want to be in the house because mm-hmm. everybody was unhappy and just looking to my right and going and that's what dark side looks like by the way when he's powering up the omega effect which is the thing <laughs> that blinks you into non-existence right uh, and I, you know when i read tom king's recent miracle man or mr miracle mr miracle clearly he also accepts dark side as a metaphor for depression suicidal mm-hmm. ideation all of mm-hmm. the bad things in the universe. And look, Kirby made that explicit. There's a line in the Forever People. One of the, you know, comic book writing is what it is, but every once in a while there's something in there that sticks with you fucking forever. Oh, yeah. And the Forever People was not my favorite book, but there's one where he's talking to a televangelist who's one of his agents on earth called Glorious Godfrey. And he says, I like you, Godfrey. You're the revelator thrilled with the sound of his own words i'm paraphrasing here but i'm the revelation i'm the tiger mm. force at the heart of the universe when you cry out in your nightmares it is dark side that you see and that has stayed with me for the rest of my life uh the other one and again this is not this is just great comic book writing i think about this line more often than so many things from great literature or so-called great literature at the end of the death of Captain Marvel, when Thanos presents death as a beautiful woman in a robe to Captain Marvel, who is dying of cancer, and this is his dying hallucination, mm-hmm. you know, Thanos basically says to him, look, it's it's not bad. It's peace. It's, it's going to be fine. Uh, don't be afraid. And Captain Marvel passes his hand over the beautiful woman's face, and it turns into a skeleton. And he says, I'm not afraid. I just no longer need the illusion. Mm, I line. think about I just no longer need the illusion mm-hmm. once a week, 
about, and not about death necessarily, not about illness, but about almost everything on the world. It's just that I no longer need the illusion. Mm -hmm. Tim Starlin, ladies and gentlemen, on mortality, <laughs> on facing reality, on living in the real world, on metaphors. That's, that is some superb writing. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, it's it's as good as anything anyone's ever written about death, and mm -hmm. uh, you know I think that's a that is a, that is the goal. I aspire to be as good as those two lines. You know I am. Um, I have a very rich inner world that mm -hmm. looks and sounds and feels very different than uh, you know the world that's out there, the world in which I I have to interact with people, um, and uh, you know I have very rich and in-depth conversations with you know myself with uh with with portions of my psyche um and you know i've spent you know I've spent a good long time uh, uh with therapists sorting that out and figuring out how and why i like to be alone and how and why mm -hmm. that's that's okay and 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 is good for me and for anyone really um and i have spent a long time uh, illustrating that in my comic books and trying to show the difference between, you know, a character's inner world and a character's outer world. I mean, if you, mm -hmm. uh, you know, if you, um, you open up any of my books, you'll see it. You'll see it immediately. The, uh, it, you know, their, um, the coloring changes, the the art changes, the the entire thing. And um, yeah, I mean, I'm still, I, it, it's funny. I mean, writing, creating anything has always been therapy for me i mean it, it, it yeah actually, it actually, for sure actually it took me way too long to sit down with a the therapist and um writing was all i had for a very long time you know um and so yeah i mean i'm um yeah if i'm obsessed with anything if i'm still trying to work it out um that's that's what it is 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 the um you know the meaning of our inner world and the 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 the, the place uh of, of our inner worlds and our lives and the value of it you know when compared to i mean a lot of people say okay well you know it's life is about people and it's about interacting with people and that's the only thing of value and i um i disagree uh, <laughs> uh yeah you know I, I i don't know that i would get by without uh without my my inner world and my inner monologue that, that that's the thing and that you know that, that's more sort of out there you know esoteric uh, answer to your question um i am really obsessed with um people getting hit <laughs> um and it's a weird thing for a you know a, a guy who writes action movies to say and action comic books um i mean i i you know when when i you know, I'm doing this thing where I had to I had to write um, you know little articles for a, a, a comic book website um, you know little tips and tricks sort of things and and you know uh, you know what, what are your writing tips your writing tricks and the first article I wrote was okay we'll punch the reader in the face twice right like <laughs> just just two big twists you know what I'm saying um, uh, and, and and here's where you do them here's why you do them you know they think you're headed left go to the right Um you know, pull the, uh, pull the rug out from under him, the whole thing. But, but w when I, I, I had to go into my comic books and find actual, uh, examples and it was startling how often <laughs> those examples were literally someone getting, getting punched in the face. Uh, sure. um, issue two, let me see if I had it, uh, issue two of aberrant. Let me see if I can get it. I know this is great radio. Sorry guys. Uh, <laughs> issue two of aberrant literally starts with somebody getting hit in the face mm -hmm. with a bottle and you have no idea where we are 
who that is, why it's happening. Um, big dramatic question, right? He's getting, he's just bottle smashed over his face, faces contorting, spit, blood flying out, eyes bulging out of his head. Um, and, uh, and you know, you're just right in the middle of things. It's just a, it's just a shotgun fucking start. It's like, okay, we're in the middle of the fight. What do we do? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Where, well, the punches, where are the punches coming from? Why is this guy hitting me? Why is, uh, 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 and I love that. I love that energy. You know, yeah. you, again, mm. you go back to the tips and tricks, like come in late, leave early. Right? Yeah. That's what I was just going to say. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you can't, you can't come in any, you can't come in any later than we're throwing fists now, you know, uh, uh, you know, we know you have a million questions. Let's start answering them, you know. And I think I think in comic book terms, that's a great trick. Um, yeah. I mean, we know we know the like come in late, leave early, and screenwriting and everything that's like that. Fair. But um, I'm thinking of like everyone from like John Byrne to like uh, Brian K. Vaughn does it a lot, right? That that big first panel um, that just completely draws you in. You don't know what's going on, and then you want to match that at the end with another panel that's like, oh my god, what? Wait, what? <laughs> you know, I'm thinking of the yeah. Uh, um, uh, what was it? Ex Machina, where you have the one tower still standing at the end of the first issue, right? Yeah. I mean, that's an end image, but that's yeah. that's the punch to the face, right? Yeah, that's yeah. the oh my god, yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. And I and I can't remember if he started that issue with a similar one, but I I know a lot of his stuff has been like that, where you know, especially in a serialized format, right. that first page or first two pages being that I need to know what's going on. I need to unravel this. You know, just drop the the reader right into the action. I think that's a great trick. Yeah, you, yeah. you can see him doing it and it's funny when you see him doing it but Raymond Chandler once said that when he ran out of ideas new character you've never seen before walks into the room with a gun or you find yeah. a body yeah those are the two and yeah. it's funny when you see him lean on it real hard and of course in the big sleep famously there's a dead mm -hmm. body that's never explained and no one knows why the person is killed or who yeah. killed them and it never comes up again um but it's uh there there are definitely tricks like that uh yeah Used. Yeah, yeah. I was going to add that in the Chandler sense, um, from my own personal experience, maybe a, a year ago, I wrote a, um, <laughs> I wrote a novel that I think you guys would actually appreciate because it is sort of like uh, my my Hollywood uh, pitch for it would be Conan the Bar Barbarian meets Chinatown. It's essentially right. a a noir film or noir story about a a the one guy in a corrupt town who doesn't use magic who refuses to use magic a little bit of cast a deadly spell but um this is a sword wielding barbarian type of guy right so so uh but through that i so i wrote that and i knew the basic bones of that it was going to be a very pulpy novel um it, it is a mystery and i knew what the mystery was but there's a lot i didn't know and i tried to write it using the nanorimo the the month of the november national sure. writing month sure. and i found myself relying on that new guy walks into the room with a gun, although in this case it was a sword or a spell yeah, right. or something usually. But um, I use that multiple times. And, it, you know, sometimes it, it shakes up the writer as well as the reader and oh, totally. you kind of go with it. You know, you can refine it later, but to keep me going and to keep that kind of high octane action that I wanted to write in this novel. Um, yeah, that was 100% uh, what I used. I was thinking issue five of Aberrant. You just start and there's a character just running for his fucking life. You know, he's just, he's, he's running. Yep. He, he looks like hell. You have no idea who he's running from, why he's, you know, uh, and and again, just question. It's like, okay, we're we're running from somebody. We're terrified. Uh, uh, we don't know who we're running from. We don't know where we're running to. Um, we don't know the circumstances. But you know, this is the next twenty-two to thirty pages are going to be about figuring out why and how and where we're going. And um, and you know, that's great. You know, just just uh, 
you know, screw uh, screw the pleasantries, screw the hellos, and the, this is why we're here. It's just we're running now. You know, you better get on fucking board. I I really dislike the the terminology uh, that is very common in writing Twitter about planning and pantsing. You know. Doing, oh yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I hate the sound of it, but um, I come way down harder on the side of. Uh, letting it flow and forcing itself. And my favorite, you know, this is an odd thing for a writer to say, my favorite thing about comic books is deadlines. That I do (laughs) not have, I I have to solve the problem now. I cannot go ponder the trees. I cannot go, I have no (laughs) thought. There is a question. The question is what happens on this page. Mm -hmm. The question is to be answered in the next five minutes. And is it the best, you know, Life is not planned. Uh, yeah. I think there you 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 an overabundance of planning in anything uh, will, unless you are an absolute genius, it will it will lead you into artifice uh, because that's not. Whereas whatever your first thought was, the reason it was your first thought, yeah, uh, and and maybe go with that impulse. You know, again, yeah. not the. There's plenty of stuff that I plan. I'm a big believer in outlines, but one of my favorite screenwriters who sadly has been uh, corralled by Tom Cruise for the last 10 years. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. A very underrated movie called The Way of the Gun that has... Yes. Some, and Ryan Phillippe throws this line away, which is a great shame, but he says, a plan is a list of things that aren't going to happen. <laughs> that is yeah. one of my fa- and I'm a huge planner, and I still... A plan is a list of things that isn't going to happen. Once you accept that that is the way the world works, uh, and particularly particularly film noir, mm-hmm. particularly Pulp Fiction in that sense, the whole premise to me, one of the things that defines the genre is things don't go according to plan. That's the, the definition of the genre mm-hmm. is the hero says, tell you what, I'm going to pick you up at the bar and we're going to go to the police station. He never gets to the bar and they definitely never get to the police station. Mm-hmm. That's the, to me that if you, if you, when you're writing and that, and also there's a, there's a thing that I think you have to fight as a writer is it's easy to write a plan and then have the plan go exactly the way everybody expects. Right. Right. Now, that's easy. That's easy to do. And I fall prey to that frequently and I have to go, okay, mm-hmm. wait, what's the, What's the unexpected thing that makes this all so much more difficult than we expected? Yeah. And, you know, it's a it's a premise of heist movies, by the way. Well, that the thing you think is the uh, the the thing you think is the thing that derailed everything was was totally accounted for. Right. <laughs> like, you know, the, the oceans movies. Yep. Everything that you go, oh, this is really bad for them. Like, nope, nope. George Clooney totally had that accounted for. And that's totally mm-hmm. part of the plan. And. Mission Impossible does the same thing. It's like at the end you go, oh, the guard finding him actually was built in. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. When when I was at Michigan, uh, McQuarrie taught us also. We had him in for, for a couple of days. And and one of the, the best writing lessons, uh, um, you know, I, I, I still use it to this day. Uh, I learned from him. It was how much does the money weigh? And he was talking about their, their you know, they he wrote the first draft of The Way of the Gun and their, their again, trying to figure out some problems. And um, they, st- I, I don't remember the movie that well, but they are, they are stealing a bunch of money, right? Yeah. And he throws out some wild number in the script 
and they had written this script where it's one big duffel bag that they have to drag around. Right. And, um, and, and again, they're, it's just, it's not sizzling, right? Like, you know, it's not working for anybody and they're trying to figure it out. And finally it hits McQuarrie. He's like, wait a minute. Like we, we threw this number out, you know, this, however many millions of dollars, um, would that fit into one bag? (laughs) He's he's like, 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 like how much, you know, how many duffel bags would you actually need to fit this much money in hundred dollar bills or $20 bills or whatever it was. And they found out it was like, you know, it was like a lot more. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Alan. And and he's like that, that changed the entire movie. You know what I'm saying? That, that was the complication we were looking for. It's like, okay, well you, you you have this thing in your head. Okay. Well, we'll grab the duffel bag and get the fuck out of here. And it's really, it's really easy, but no, it's, it's not one bag. It's 20 bags. Yeah. And, and how, how did two guys get 20 bags out? Yeah. They always put a million dollars in a relatively small briefcase, and it's like yeah. not even yeah. remotely. <laughs> like, no, unless you've yeah. got bearer bonds in there or diamonds right. or Krugerrands, yeah. and Krugerrands, that thing's going to weigh a fucking ton. Yeah. Like, uh-huh. yeah. No, another yeah. great line from that movie a million dollars isn't money, it's a motive with a universal adapter on it. <laughs> and I nice. I wish I could write stuff that good. That is yeah. that, that is a tremendous one. That movie is. I, I, are you the brains of this operation? This isn't really a brains kind of operation. <laughs> <laughs> Very underrated movie. Um, yeah. David, I did want to say I, I do agree with you that um, uh, I think on the pantsing plotting thing. Coming back to that for a minute, I I, I think especially in prose, uh, you've got to be you've got to sort of go with the, your gut a lot of the time. That's certainly what I had to do in that novel. I do notice that I tend to plot a little bit more heavily when it comes to comics. And that's largely because of the real estate. You know, yeah. you know, you have 20 pages, you know, and a lot of my stuff is creator own stuff where I kind of have to know roughly what the whole length of the, it, whether it's going to be a graphic novel or five issue or six issue series, you know, I, I've got to know. And so then I have to approach it a bit differently. I got to know what size chunk of story I'm breaking off. Um, and that's where these 12 page shorts in spectral are a little bit easier because it's, it's just oh, easier totally. to kind of identify that moment. Right. And build around it. Um, but, but yeah, like you kind of have to break it off. And so what I tend to do is I tend to sort of come up with the basic pitch then break it into blocks. And then those are issues or chapters. And then I know those are roughly about 20 pages. And then I sort of keep going into each layer and, and breaking it apart more. And it gets to a point where then I have to sit down and write, because there still is going to be some mystery in how I get from A to B or A to Z or whatever. But um, but it definitely is a process of breaking it down a lot more heavily, which I don't worry about if I'm writing prose. Prose can be a little bit more exploratory, a little bit more uh, you know, we'll see where this goes, you know, and, and uh, but you know, when you've got an artist drawing it, you know, it's so rigid in that way. No, and I will say when I write a comic, if I try to bluff my way through all 20 pages, it takes forever. If I sit down and go pages one, two and three cover this action page, yes. four and five, this happens page six, seven, this now that can be page five to 10. Yeah, fight breaks out. And at the end, this guy's dead. It doesn't have to be precise, but I have a general idea. And if I don't do that, it, it, it takes me 10 times as long to write. But that's not very strict. But in prose, yeah, there's no you don't have the real estate issue that you have in comic books. Of right. 20 pages, like I said, I just when I started, it was 22 pages. And boy, <laughs> I missed those two pages so fast. Oh, I yeah, wrote a, yeah. I wrote a Doc Savage miniseries that was four issues. And this was before, it was only my third miniseries, I think. 
And it was just this epic, you know, Indiana Jones style thing, which is appropriate for, mm -hmm. uh, but it kills me to this day because it has no second act. Because four, <laughs> four issues does not fit a three act yeah. action movies. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't. So I got two issues that are the first act. And then there's a great first act curtain. And then act three picks up immediately. Totally. Like all of the ground <laughs> yeah. that I wanted to do in act two. And you know, what's funny about that act two is where a lot of things get lost and they get boring and they get into doldrums and writers run out of things to do and bring up. And a lot of people don't have enough to, to fill a third, act, a second act. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It just goes prep, prep, climax, climax. There's no, <laughs> The meat of it is kind of gone and it drives me crazy. And I, I think it's a, a very satisfying read as it is. But to me, knowing all of the things I wanted to do with the characters, I'm like, I got to the end of the second issue. And I'm like, oh, shit, I now have to start wrapping things up already. I don't I have 40 pages mm -hmm. to tell this story. That is not enough for a long adventure on the island. They got to the end of the island. I got to confront the villain and kill him. <laughs> That's that's all I've got, and it's uh, it's it it's a uh, it's a thing that you have to get used to. And Dynamite loves doing this thing to me. They didn't do it on that, where they contract me for a four issue miniseries, and then around issue two, they go, "This is selling really well. Can you do issue five? Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> I have gotten really good at writing epilogues. Yeah, uh, that are like a totally new story that wraps up the previous story in a satisfying way. But you can't just like, no, I, I cannot change my plan that completely that I now stretch this thing by 20. That would be. And it's interesting. I mean, it there are a lot of factors bleeding into it, one of which being the IOTC negotiations didn't cover a six episode miniseries. Mm. When that happened. The head of my wife's union was like, you're going to be seeing a lot of six episode miniseries because the minute it goes to seven, the new rates kick in. And they can't do that. So everything's going to be six episodes from here on. And I've really seen it. But that said, I love the Netflix Marvel shows. Every single one of them was four episodes too long. <laughs> Either two right. or four episodes to get going, or they had a middle zone that was just, let's run out the clock and keep the hero and mm -hmm. into each other for four hours for some reason. Um, and that's, that is hard to do. And you watch a lot of it's it's why old television wasn't serialized because serializing mm -hmm. something 24 hours is a fucking trick, man. Like keeping the hero and the villain separated for 24 hours so they don't just fucking kill each other is a lot of work. 12 yeah. hours is a little easier. Six hours is just two, three hour long movies. Right. <laughs> it's just a, it's a trilogy of three hour movies, basically. Yeah. You know, the I do appreciate trilogy is a six episode Disney miniseries, essentially. Yeah. You know, I do appreciate the that we're getting different lengths of, of yeah. things. Um, that said, I think you're right that not everyone's figured it out yet. You know, in the same way that like we were talking about earlier, like telling a 12 page little horror story is different from a 20 page is different from a 120 page graphic novel. You know, in you, the way you select your story and its length and the complications and the rising tensions that you add to it all depend upon your format. And, you know, we're seeing kind of the Wild West of formats with all the streaming yeah. services and that you can have a, a you know, a six and an eight, uh, 12, you know, we're not seeing much 24 <laughs> episode uh, things anymore. But, you know, um, I, I think that, yeah, there, there's sort of a, a learning curve of kind of figuring out how to make the perfect six hour 
yeah. the show. Well, well, well yeah, and there's, there's not that much thought put into it, really. I mean, it's like, yeah. you know, we, I mean, I, I, my, my TV writing partner and I, we just sold this series to Netflix and we have three stars attached to it. And, and we still don't know how, how long it needs to be. Right. I mean, we are um, we are about to start writing this thing and it's a lot of factors and none of them have to do with what is what is the best length for this thing. Nobody's right. saying that it, 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 it's it's a couple of things like it's um, we're still having the network conversation. So it's like, well, okay. you know, I mean, when, when we when we went to Lionsgate, it was OK. Well, eight right now is this sweet spot in terms of pitching. So you pitch eight. Right. And, and you have the thing figured out as eight. Um, and, and people are like, oh, eight. You know, yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a good number. It's the good number now. So we're, you know, we're that, that's a that's a check mark. You know, yeah. uh, uh, that, that, that those that's points in your favor. However, then you start to have the um, you start to have the conversations with the networks, and this network's like, well, we don't we don't do eight, so you'll have to mm -hmm. you know, do ten, and and you know, then you go to the southern network, and it's like, well, you know, we'd we'd rather it be twelve. Um, but then the actors come back, like, well, actually, um, I'm I don't doing. Know. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm doing I'm doing Vancouver for for the other uh, TV series that I'm obligated to. And so I can maybe do 10, you know, I can maybe do eight. I can. And, and so these are all the conversations we're having. And so at some point, very late in the game, at the 11th fucking hour, they're going to be like, you got eight, go. You know? Yeah. And um, and that's a huge difference. Like, you know, we can yeah. we, we can tell the story in eight. Uh, but, you know, there are going to be networks that are going to say we need 13. Go. And then it's going to be like Avalone says. Well, it's like you know, okay. Well, what um? Do we really have an? Why do we do Why do we do an episode where they go to Cabo? You know? Um, yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's the the lost uh, problem. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I I personally love digressionary storytelling because yeah. that's how the world really works. You know, there yeah, yeah. isn't stories are not focused. Cops yeah. are working on eight cases at any given time. That's the real world. Yeah. Yeah, uh, they don't work on one case for an hour, covering a period of three days, and then it wraps up, and the guy goes to jail. That has yeah. never happened in the history of mankind. So, <laughs> I I enjoy the idea that, and it's, again, going back to what I said about film noir and pulp, it's like, yeah, shit yeah. comes up that you weren't expecting, and now you got to deal with this yeah. for a day. And I mm. always kind of love that idea yeah. or, of yeah. you know it can be really well done. You know, one of my favorite television shows of all time that I always evangelize for because I think it's unnecessarily forgotten is Crime Story, which really invented serialized television. Mm -hmm. Even the Hill Street Blues still ha always had an A plot that wrapped up in an hour. Mm -hmm. The B plots were all serialized, but the A plot, the criminal of the week, the issue of the week wrapped up in an hour. Crime Story was 24 hours of this one guy going after this other guy and they had episodes that were digressions and they kept the two guys from shooting each other for, for 22 episodes, but they were mostly going, well, he's a cop. He can't just walk up and shoot the guy. Mm -hmm. and this was in an area where the mafia knew it couldn't just assassinate police officers because that was too much heat. Um, but that idea building the conflict between the characters that long and coming up with little, side fights for them to have and victories and defeats for them to have <laughs> excuse me <clears throat> that's a ton of work and it's not yeah. easy to do and a lot of writers rooms aren't up to it and then there mm -hmm. are you know I'll, i see uh on some shows that i like very much and i will not name because friends of mine work on them i see 13 hours of something that's a would have been a really solid two hour long movie 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it works the other way too, where it's like, okay, hey, hey, you know, you, you your Game of Thrones uh, seasons have been, you know, thirteen episodes uh, every season, and you know, like wrap uh, wrap the whole thing up in eight episodes. You know, yeah. give it a whirl. <laughs> it feels, you know, it, it there are shortcuts. It doesn't it doesn't feel as meaty, and it doesn't feel. I remember as the, last, the last season of Discovery in the second to last issue uh, episode. I turned to my wife and said, "This is Star Trek: The Motion Picture. Try not to be upset about that." Yeah, <laughs> what they've settled on is the climax of the whole V'ger and the Enterprise thing in order. Right, to, right. Don't yeah. don't let it upset you that that's what they're doing. It's very classic Star Trek. Star Trek has done this story nine times about the unbelievably powerful alien object that's destroying everything in its path, but it's really all just a misunderstanding. That is a very classic Star Trek story, and we're pretty much going to wrap it up just the way we've always wrapped it up, and that's fine. You know, right. it's valid sci-fi storytelling. Just lean into it. But, but you know, sometimes you go, you know, Strange New Worlds is a great return to sort of the Hill Street Blues thing of yep. A story always gets wrapped up in an hour. We got eight or nine B stories going and we'll wrap up one of those occasionally. Yeah, you know? yeah. Uh, they wrapped up the one with Dr. Mbenga in the last episode, which I thought they were going to stretch that out for two seasons. And they went, yep. no, we can actually – and I, you know, personally – one of the things, one of the greatest weaknesses of old school episodic television, and it's a huge weakness of comic books, is that story never ending thing. Yes, and right. Particularly that an untenable situation that wouldn't last. One of my favorite things about Alias is they did two seasons where she was undercover, the, the TV show with Jennifer Garner, not the comic book with Brian Bendis. They did two seasons where she was undercover, an undercover CIA agent, especially essentially working for Spectre. And right. at the end, <laughs> they busted Spectre, raided the fortress, and it was done. And then the next season, she was just a spy working for the CIA on something else, mm-hmm. because that was an untenable situation. She would get yeah. caught, or she would have enough evidence to bring them down. You didn't yeah. need twenty-four more hours of oh, she's still balancing being a student with it. No, that. You can't make that work for this long, yeah. you know, no, I, yeah. and knowing how long a story is validly told for. I have a premise in uh, the creator owned thing that I do called uh, the Night Avenger, uh, where it's ba- it, I did. And I was not a reader of Moon Knight, so I didn't know it was similar in some ways to Moon Knight. But the premise is essentially Batman is literally a paranoid schizophrenic who doesn't know he's Batman. Mm. And he's not multiple people. He's just Bruce Wayne, millionaire. In mine, he's a police officer, and he's literally assigned the task of catching the vigilante, but he's actually the vigilante that he's (laughs) hunting. But I've always said, and it's something that's, uh, it's a a meta story inside the Drawing Blood, the comic book is about comic book creators. So this Mm -hmm. is just one character's comic book character, if that makes sense. But I've always said, that premise wouldn't last beyond the first 12 issues. After 12 issues, he's got to figure out that he's Batman. Like, yeah. you, can't, mm-hmm. you can't go 30 years of your main character being such a goof that he, well, I still, I wake up every morning with cracked ribs and bruises on my knuckles, and there's that mysterious closet door I've never opened. I wonder what's in there. You know, mm-hmm. like, it doesn't last forever. It's a good premise yeah. to start something. It's a great idea for a two-hour-long movie or a six-issue miniseries, but the climax of that first season of the TV show or the movie is the therapist tells him, "You're the Night Avenger. It's you." And then you, 
and then you let the thing evolve from there. Right. Evolve yeah. beyond its initial premise because the initial premise doesn't hold that long. Yeah, it, it was it, it was how Homeland survived. You know, Homeland uh, Homeland had a really great first season. And, uh, you know, then they brought back Damian Lewis for the second season and they were like, wow, this, this isn't working. <laughs> and so what do you do? You kill your fucking star. You kill off Damian Lewis. Right. And, and then the third season was great. You know, and um, yeah. you saw the same thing. Uh, there was a, a really good detective show on uh, AMC a few years back called The Killing. And, mm. oh, uh, yeah. and uh, you know, case a season sort of thing. And the first season was outstanding. And they made the mistake of they get the killer at the end of the first season and everything looks great. And like the last shot of that first season is, oh, actually, it wasn't that person. It's this person. And then mm. they, they try to continue the case into the second season. And it was terrible. And, yeah. And, yeah. And, they, and they lost, you know, half their viewership or whatever. And, um, and that, that yeah, they, second season, second I, season was a train wreck. They came back for a third season, did a new case. They didn't really win their audience back, unfortunately. But the third season is great because new case, new uh, same detectives, new case, yeah. new villains, new, new the whole thing. They 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 reinvented the story and yeah that's before, that's what you have to before do. Chris Carter came up with it, and this is not I'm not presenting this as any active genius on myself uh, of my own. I pitched the you know people the X Files by saying in the middle of this when they caught Laura Palmer I was like he has to leave Twin Peaks now and the show should mm -hmm. then be Dale Cooper FBI agent who uh, of the uncanny the yeah, FBI yeah. agent. He can take along maybe the Air Force Colonel dad, uh, maybe the odd <laughs> lady. He still calls on the phone every once in a while to get a thing. But I don't care about the denizens of this small town that much. Yeah. I cared about the murder of Laura Palmer, and that's what I stuck around for. It's solved now. I want a TV series with Kyle McLaughlin and uh, David Lynch and Miguel Ferrer. Yeah, that's right. I would, that's, yeah, I would, that, I, that's, I, I would, I would, yeah, I would still watch that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and, and I, I think I mean the fuck up. <laughs> I don't, I don't know that he pitched it, but I really wonder if Chris Coop, uh, Chris Carter, when he pitched the Ice Files, when yeah. they had a great show there and they dumped yeah. it. Yeah. They had the show about the kooky FBI agent who takes on the metaphysical science fictional cases. Let's run with that thing that great yeah. idea they had that they didn't yeah. use you yeah. know yeah uh well yeah but, i think you're 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 talking about a lot of uh, things that tv has been dealing with for a long time right we see that all the time whether it's lost or or even moonlighting of like uh uh bruce willis and uh uh Sybil Shepherd getting together, whatever. There's always that thing where if you base the show around this tension, yeah, then will there or won't they? Yeah, we, yeah, well, the will there or won't they? Then yeah. once you break that, then you're, you're what's you're, left? Yeah, you exactly. Have have, you have to have a second idea. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, The Office had the same thing with Jim and Pam. I mean, Fred, right. Friends ran into similar things. It, where, it happens yeah, all Ross the time. Ross and Rachel, and yeah, exactly, and I, exactly. I, 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 I will go to my grave saying it's lazy writing because if that's all you've got. Was that one idea, you know, uh, and they do it, you know, Star Trek Discovery had the main character fall in love and then created a very artificial break between the two main characters. Mm -hmm. I hate that shit. Yep. Yeah. Like, no, you yeah. gave me the happy ending, maintain the happy ending, find another story to tell that's yeah. not Michael yeah. is brokenhearted. How and about maybe like I've been married for 15 years. Strangely, <laughs> enough, that wasn't the end of my problems. And I have had other problems come up, 
none of which involved me and my wife having a problem with one another. We've been very happily married for 15 years. <laughs> other dramas have presented themselves in my life after right. the love story of David Avalone wrapped up, done, finished, good. Other dramatic things then happened to me. You right. know, people fall in love with this idea of, no, let's break, you know, we made them happy. Let's break that up. No, find yeah. another fucking thing to break. World is and at least classically, so, some of that may be because of the, the the setup, right, or production, or like if it's a sitcom, for example, you've got your sets and your and breaking the whole, like changing the whole show, moving it into a new place can be difficult. And well, I think I there's think a lot of people, and maybe wrongly, but suggesting that you know, well, if we change the show this much, the viewers will leave as well, you know. So I do understand that there's so a lot of thought probably over the years that has gone into that. But I think what we're all talking about when we break boil it down to story is like letting a story be exactly as long as it needs to be. And if there's a sequel or a different variation on that or a different, you know, angle to pursue it, like the David Avalone <laughs> life after the yeah. romance part, you know, I think that's very valid. And maybe we're getting to a place where we can do that. I, I was thinking about this because I was thinking about it in prose, too, that like, you know, there are if you want, like they'll tell you like 100,000 words at least for a fantasy novel, 80,000 words for a literary novel. And just the other day, I purchased, someone recommended to me a, a digital novella that's like 69 pages. It's like this very cool gothic horror, kind of body horror, uh, very well written. And I'm like, I love this because this is exactly how long the story needed to be. It's longer than a short story, shorter yeah. than a novel, but it's what it wanted to be. And I kind of feel like with all the streaming, with the digital platforms and everything, I'd, I'd like to see more creators, you know, kind of creating stories that are exactly <clears throat> the length that... It takes to tell them. Yeah, I the best thing that's happened to television in terms of adapting novels. Novels were always too long to be movies. Yes. Yeah. My film professor in 1985 said to me, and he used Apocalypse Now actually as an example. He's like, "That's a short story. It's a longest short story." I don't know that. I don't know that I'd call Heart of Darkness a novella. I think it's a little short for a novella. It might just. Yeah. But he's like. You know, Coppola made a 40 page short story into a two and a half hour long movie, and that's about <laughs> right. And if you've got something that's 300 pages long and you try to boil it down to two hours, you're going to fail. And, you know, mm -hmm. it, I've said this a million times, but, uh, you know, Peter Jackson claims he learned everything he needed to learn about storytelling from King Kong. It's like, well, then you wouldn't have made a three and a half hour long King Kong movie. <laughs> the original is 100 minutes long, dude. The lesson is right. Raiders of the Lost Ark and King Kong are roughly the same length. That's just, that's your action movie. That's your fast-paced action movie. You go longer than that, you're bullshit. Mm -hmm. I always, by the way, 2001: A Space Odyssey. I think it's two hours and 21 minutes long, something like that. I always use that as the benchmark when someone tells me an action movie is two hours and a half long. I'm like, so it's longer than 2001: A Space Odyssey, which <laughs> the entire story of the human race. <laughs> got it got it they needed more time for dr strange in the, the and i enjoyed that movie but they needed more time for dr strange in the multiverse of madness than kubrick needed for 2001 a space <laughs> go back to the go back to the drawing board kids got a few minutes. your movie's too goddamn long you know your fan service is taking up too much time you know it's uh I think about that all the time about the mm -hmm. the, the length issue and mm -hmm. how action movie, you know, Star Wars non special edition is two hours long. 
That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. No star, you know, M- Jedi, he pushed it to, I think, 215. But we had a lot of threads to wrap up, a lot of action. Fair. But, you know, I'll accept Endgame being three hours long because it's the climax of 26 other movies. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, you got a lot to do there. But anyway, speaking of climaxes, we should wrap this up and leave the... Leave the- <laughs> Right. Uh, Same, going too long. <laughs> where they can find uh, your Kickstarter. Um, yeah, you can uh, follow me on any of the social platforms. I'm on uh, Instagram and Twitter at dacampo, D-A-C-C-A-M-P-O. Um, and I'll have links there to everything. Or if you search Spectral, a showcase of fear on uh, um Kickstarter, uh, then we then we can find it there. And yeah, it is an example of stories that are exactly how the two creators wanted them to be. <laughs> go and back spectral and get your copy of the book so yeah that's, that's, that's what, what all creator on things would be and of course we will yeah. include links uh on the video for this and on the audio so wonderful we'll be able to just look down and 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 find it and click the link and please uh please support rylan what have you got I am at Rylan Grant on all forms of social social media. Excuse me, I can't speak uh, anymore, apparently. Uh, that is uh, R-Y-L-E-N-D-G-R-A-N-T, if you're listening. I always spell it because it's not a real name. My parents just sort of um, drunkenly arranged letters and saddled me with it, so now I have to spell it for you. <laughs> um, but my, uh, my books, uh, the Ringo Award-winning Aberrants, uh, the four-time Ringo-nominated Banjacks, and uh, my tokosatsu joint, uh, my most recent uh, suicide jockeys, those are available in fine comic shops everywhere uh, and via Amazon and you know wherever they sell fine comics. Uh, my Kickstarter books, The Astral Projection Thriller, The Jump, and the Fargo West Crime Drama, The Peacekeepers are available via my backer kit site. If you go to thejump2.backerkit.com, the jump one word and the number two, thejump2.backerkit.com, you can get those. Um, as well as signed copies of Aberrant and Banjax and Rare Con Variants. It's a one-stop Ryland Grant shop. Uh, so go check that out. And then, um, you know, my, my most recent, my uh, uh, Wuxia Kung Fu epic Fa Sheng Origins is available right now via the Immortal Studios website. If you go to immortal-studios.com, you'll find that. Um, yeah, and I'm looking forward to reading The Dead Game by Michael Avaloni. <laughs> Yeah, no kidding. That sounded amazing. Dead game! Uh, mystery set in the world of baseball. Wow. Nice. Uh, I believe, and it's about a, the MacGuffin is a missing diary of Edgar Allan Poe. My father was a huge oh. Poe fan. I think there's a fake uh, Rhode Island-based baseball team called the Providence Ravens. Wow. <laughs> uh, or they're the Baltimore Ravens. I can't remember in beautiful. the in the book, but it's 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 actually one of my favorite books. It has it has a lot of a lot of really great stuff in it. And it's it the bottom of the ninth. Two outs. For, you know what? For the show notes, I will send you the uh, direct link to the Kindle. No, for, nice. uh, since we talked about it for Dead Game because it's a it's a terrific early Avalone. And speaking of late Avalone. Uh, Still running is Shakespeare Unleashed, uh, which includes my Richard III story, uh, Bloody Thou Art, and uh, which is uh, got, uh, heavily indebted to the work of Tom Stoppard, which I will uh, easily cop to. There's a lot of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead in there. Mm. And uh, coming next month, currently out, is She's a Kubrick House, Starland <laughs> number two which will be followed by the alien issue, Geiger encounter, 
The fourth issue is The Man of Your Dreams, which is a, a Freddy Krueger joint. And uh, the fifth issue will be The Fly Based, and I can't... Oh, I think it's called All Hail the New, the New Flesh, which is the Cronenberg issue. Uh, nice. Followed by... Oh, and in July, I also have coming... Um, an issue of the anthology book Savage Tales, uh, in which I was asked to dig up the corpses of uh, Alan Quatermain and Gullivar of Mars and do things with them, uh, wholesome things, one hopes. Um, and that'll be uh, <laughs> hopefully a lot. I've been asked to do a second one. So the Gulliver story, which ends on a cliffhanger, will be continued. So nice. there's some good news for you. Thank you so much for joining us for the Writer's Block. Thank you so much, David. What an incredibly great time. Conversation oh, that was you. great. Oh, this is a fantastic and conversation. Thank you. <laughs> sometime soon. Thanks for listening, guys. If you're watching us on YouTube, be sure to smash that like button. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts or other fine purveyors of ear crack, please leave us a five-star review. And wherever you're watching and or listening, subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. We'll see you back here next week for more madcap hijinks on the Writer's Block. For more information, visit PendantAudio.com. Thanks for listening.